Welcome everyone. My name is Minoush Shafiq and I'm the Director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And welcome to this event entitled Life After COVID, Challenges and Policy Response. Now we know from history that after some crises, the world fundamentally changes, like after the Great Depression or World War II. But we also know that after other crises, not much fundamentally changes, like World War I or the financial crisis in 2008. And often that lack of change comes back to haunt us. With COVID, many, many of us long to a return to normal life without physical distancing, lockdowns, fear, and loneliness. But the crisis has revealed major problems in our societies, and there's a growing appetite for change. What are those things that should change, and what should our policy response be? And we have four outstanding speakers to help us think through this question. All have led their countries through various major crises, and they will share their insights with us on how not to let this crisis go to waste. The advantage of having such uh, well-known speakers is I don't have to spend a long time introducing them, so I'll be very brief. We'll start with Kevin Rudd, who was Prime Minister of Australia during the 2008 financial crisis, having previously served as Foreign Minister and currently is associated with a huge number of think tanks and universities and foundations. Following that, we'll hear from Michelle Bachelet, who was twice elected president of Chile, having previously been Minister of Health and Defense, and of course, was the first woman in those roles. She's currently the UN Commissioner, High Commissioner for Human Rights. She'll be followed by Helen Clark, who served three successive terms as the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and then two terms as the head of the United Nations Development Program and chair of the UN Development Group. And then finally, we hear from Matteo Renzi, who was Prime Minister of Italy, youngest, the youngest Prime Minister in Italy's history, previously was Mayor of Florence, and now Senator of the Electoral College of Florence. I'm going to encourage our speakers to range widely uh, and think about the consequences for democracy and governance, our economies, health, society, and the environment. And after they speak, my colleague Andres Velasco, who's the Dean of the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics, will moderate questions from the audience. So let me turn first to Kevin Rudd. I think he's still on mute. Could we unmute? Uh, could Good. We unmute? There we are. Over to you, Kevin. Thank you very much, Manoush. And it's great to be with friends and colleagues, and um, particularly those with the um, London School of Economics, a great global institution. Um, a few reflections in the five or six minutes that you've allocated to each of us for initial remarks. Um, first, in terms of uh, strategic policy uh, change in the post-COVID world, in terms of domestic political governance, for me, the central uh, message coming out of this has to do with two things and perhaps three. Uh, one is uh, the absolute centrality of tackling uh, the inequality agenda because uh, what we have seen with this virus and so many other crises in the past, be they public health, financial or economic crises, is the disproportional impact on those who are less equipped to defend themselves. 
And rather than that just being a normative statement from the usual progressive voices from the centre-left, I would simply say enlightened self-interest should suggest itself to the centre-right around the world that unless you do this, a democratic capitalism ultimately implodes. Of course, two sub-elements of that equality agenda are these. Um, You either have an equitable public health system or you don't. Um, And if it is inequitable, then the capacity for rapid implosion uh, in other directions, as we've seen with various disturbances around the world, become rapidly manifest. And a second subset of the governance point is this, uh, and that is, uh, given the nature of the virus, but frankly, given where the structure of the global economy is headed anyway, this is the clarion clear signal to finally wrestle the digital divide to the ground. That is, those people who have been most disadvantaged economically are those who have had less access to reliable digital technologies, either to maintain themselves in some form of employment or not, or to maintain connection or not. So therefore, this is not just a classic cri de coeur from the centre-left. It has materiality to it. Um, and therefore, if not taken seriously, then the fabric of capitalism, be it liberal democratic or social democratic capitalism, uh, comes unstuck. Second set of points I'd make uh, concerns uh, the question of a deep strategic learning um, and a dangerous non-learning, that if we think this is a normal economic recovery, um, where uh, environmental sustainability questions are cast to one side, uh, then frankly, we are simply storing up for ourselves an even bigger set of implosions uh, in the period ahead. And the truth is, whether it's at a G20 level or an OECD level or a G7 level, the architecture for a genuine green recovery does not require rocket science, let alone a road scholarship. Um, And therefore, it is quite clear what governments can do to lead their economies in a recovery direction which is green and sustainable uh, and takes this as a massive strategic opportunity to turn the corner on global climate action. That's my second point. Uh, My third and my final one uh, in the allocated time is uh, a strategic policy learning in terms of international governance. Um, This is not the time to uh, rehearse the rights and wrongs, the ups and downs, and who's to blame and who's not to blame uh, for the World Health Organization Um, and the blame game between the WHO and national governments in terms of actions taken or not taken in various countries around the world to deal with COVID-19. But it is a clarion clear cry to the uh, peoples of the world in the 21st century is that global governance must work. It must be effective. Um, since the Ebola crisis, I think those of us who are familiar with the UN system, Helen in particular and Michelle, these are both uh, deeply experienced practitioners. Um, following the Ebola crisis, we have had, in my count, three separate external reviews of the World Health Organization, all of which have come up with identical sets of recommendations for which member states, that is all of us, that is those who form the Committee of Governance of the WHO, 
have been absolutely indolent in acting on. And so I take that not just for the WHO, but the other critical institutions of global governance, that given the challenges we face in the future are progressively global in nature, pandemics, global financial management, climate, then this, the clarion clear message for all of us uh, is to invest in credible uh, diplomatic, uh, political and uh, what I would describe as financial triage of these systems and institutions to survive them effectively into the future. Um, great power politics will always be blamed for dysfunction. Yes, there's a fair bit of that. But a lot of it is collapsing finance, collapsing collective political will by, let's call it, the collectivity of strong, uh, constructive powers, middle powers, call them what you will in the international system. So there are three thoughts in terms of policy uh, challenges which are doable for the future. Uh, thanks, Manoush. Very good. Thank you, Kevin. Let me turn straight away to uh, Michelle Bachelet. Thank you, Minouche. I think um, for months now, the COVID-19 has been, pandemic has been challenging our societies, our governments, ourselves, testing our leadership or lack of leadership, I would say, and humanity and disrupting the lives of millions of people on the planet. But um, I think the pandemic needs uh, and demands decisive, coordinated and innovative action if we want to, to be able to defeat it. So my key message will be in this regard is that this is a human rights crisis. So the recovery efforts will need will only be effective if with the human rights front and center, um, because we know exactly when we're talking about a pandemic and a virus that until everyone is safe, no one is safe. And I think that will be very important in a lot of other discussions when we think on vaccines that we need to ensure that it will be a, a global public good because otherwise they, we won't be able to defeat it. So I think. Uh, Kevin was saying, and then for all of us that have been in politics fighting inequalities uh, our, our whole lives, is that COVID-19 has laid bare the inequalities that were there, usually. Uh, and of course, I've laid bare also models, uh, model economic models and, and ways of uh, looking at the state role uh, that shown how how weak well they were because for many years um, state did not invest in public health, for example, because it was believed that it was not necessary. State was were weakened in many places because they were not thought that should be strong. And I think we have been seeing with the COVID-19 that state have been fundamental. That doesn't mean that other stakeholders are fundamental as well. We need the private sector, of course, but state continue having a very important protection role. Um, the other thing that I think Kevin said, and I completely agree, and I've been talking about all these days, that when we talk about going back to normality, of course, we cannot go back to the zero day before. Because, of course, COVID-19 has shown a lot of things, but we follow uh, protests and conflicts all over the world. Last year, we had 80 countries with people on the streets, including mine, uh, uh, protesting against the economic uh, system, against poverty, against discrimination, uh, against inequalities, or in some other places against corruption and, and political uh, inadequacy of the government. So um, COVID is not, it, we, we, it's not that we now identify something that is new. It was there. And, 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 and we have to look at this opportunity on the response, and in particular on the recovery, 
on what is has been said to build back better, to build back better in thinking which is the kind of society, which is the kind of economy, how we relate private, uh, private sector to state, etc., etc. But let me focus a little bit more on inequality and social infrastructure. Because I think that uh, COVID-19 is exposing the dramatic effects of decades of underspending in health, water, sanitation, housing, social protection, and of policies eroding labor rights and decent work. Because it's true, the virus does not discriminate, but it affects disproportionately certain groups. And social and economic exclusion is uh, frequently aggravated by the multiple impact of multiple intersecting forms of uh, discrimination, which are based on age, gender, race or ethnicity, migration status, sexual orientation, disability or health status. And of course, uh, it can be perpetuated as, as well with harmful gender, cultural or, or, or social norms and stigma. Uh, older people as well are particularly affected, indigenous people as well. So why I mention this? Because when people are thinking on the recovery, how they're going to do it, Usually they try to think on as an homogeneous, as all people will be the same. And it's not like that. We need it. We really need to make the recovery an opportunity to leave no one behind. We need to have include all these risk factors and have policies that really will reach them. Otherwise, they'll be left behind. And we have a problem because the majority of countries do not have disability data. Maybe they have gender data. Maybe they can have data by, by, by age or maybe for indigenous. In some countries, they don't have any of those. But the intersecting risk factors of all of them, almost any country has it. So I think it means for us to be, I mean, as UN, to help much more governments to try to identify, to do the mapping, if I may say, the, the, of the discrimination and inequalities and try to identify which are the best policy for that. Um, we, of course, we need also to um, strengthen um, uh, social infrastructure with uh, state efforts to build universal social protection system crucial tool to curve poverty and uh, inequality and to access and facilitate access to healthcare, while at the same time um, protecting the enjoyment of economic and social rights such as food, health, social security, education, housing, and water. Um, the other thing that I, I, I believe is very important because the other group that has been particularly affected is women. Uh, women, because poor old women usually they don't have pension, they don't have social schemes, or women they work a lot on the informal economy and with the lockdowns that have been really affected. So, so any recovery has to have also a gender lens. Um, and the other thing that I want to say that for the 12 countries that are supposed to have the best uh, response to the, to the crisis and to the COVID-19, seven are led by women. So I think it's a good time that not only people go outside to applaud the health workers, the majority of women, but also to acknowledge that women can be very good leaders as well. So um, democrat, democracy has been fundamental. I think in those countries where you have demo, democratic uh, values, where people can participate and be part of the response, where people have access to freedom of information, of, of expression, where you have press, press freedom, it has been much better because people are aware, understand why it's needed to do what is being done by the governments, and they have a better response. Unfortunately, we have seen shrinking space for civics, for a shrinking civic space, and we've seen um, many of these uh, urgency measures used to uh, to to harass uh, and to avoid freedom of express. Finally, I, I want to say that to build back better, I think we need to take into consideration that we need a new economy uh, that is inclusive, that is sustainable or greener, however you want to call it, um, that has a gender lens as well, um, but also um, 
that we have to include the environmental issues as a very important thing. We need to continue working on climate change because 70% of the emergent, emergent diseases in the world are zoonosis caused by animals to human beings. I'm a doctor, so I'm always trying to understand these things. And, um, and Ebola, SARS, MERS, and now COVID-19 are zoonosis as well. So if we don't respect nature and if we don't respect biodiversity, we will only have more and more pandemics in the future. So I think we need to use this opportunity to really rethink uh, on how and how we develop a, a, a way to recover that is completely different. I mean, maintain the good things, but improve the so many bad things that we have today in the world. And finally, COVID-19 shows so clearly something that we, many of us are believing always, that on global challenges, you need global responses and the importance of multilateralism, because many of these things, uh, pandemics, climate change, conflicts, uh, migration, etc., there are also intersecting issues that uh, will produce a lot of bad consequences for humanity. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. That was wonderful. Uh, Helen, let's turn to you. Thank you, Manoj. Well, our topic... Uh, gets us focused on the post-COVID world. But of course, that's not exactly with us. We've probably got another 18 to 24 months of this turmoil to run. And I think the outlook is very, very challenging. I think there's a, a lot of lessons we can learn uh, from what's happened uh, to our world and to our countries during the pandemic. But it's far from guaranteed that countries are going to learn any of those lessons. And in my humble opinion, if the world's citizens want a better future, they're going to have to stand up and demand it very, very loudly and hope that you know at least some leaders are enlightened enough uh, to be listening. We all take part in a lot of discussions which talk about how imperative it is that there's a reset post-pandemic, uh, but that opportunity could easily uh, be, be missed. Now, I think there's, there's a range of things which could be focused on immediately as part of building back better. The, the, the first thing is pandemic preparedness. This pandemic is the sixth time that the WHO in the last 17 years has declared a public health emergency of international concern. So on, on average, that's about you know, one every three and three quarter years. These zoonotic diseases are going to keep coming at us. And if we're not flat again, in the near term, the way we've been knocked flat by, by COVID, it, it, it's really uh, un, unthinkable. And so uh, drawing on the experiences of those who have handled the pandemic uh, relatively well, I think would be, would be wise. And I think there's a lot of lessons for governments in having transparent and open communication with citizens and being seen to you know, rely on uh, good scientific advice and be open to a range of, of advice. Uh, building the, the trust that you know what you, you're doing and giving it your best stab and bringing your citizens uh, with you. But pandemic planning, preparedness planning, I think is critical. I mean, linked to that is also the need to fix broken health systems. What have we seen around the world? We've seen a lack of coordination between the, the level of the state and regions and districts and, uh, and, uh, and so on. We've seen poor IT systems, which, which don't talk to each other. We've seen the consequences of the lack of investment in population health. And I think a key thing that, that should come out of a reset is universal health coverage, which is a global goal. So many people don't enjoy it. How can you fight a pandemic, including in a Western country, if people fear the costs 
of coming forward for testing and possibly facing a hospitalisation. If you're an undocumented worker or a migrant, what do you face, do face with the prospect of illness when coming forward might lead to your deportation? So universal health coverage for everyone everywhere, I think, is, is vital. Uh, third obvious point, and both uh, Kevin and Michelle have touched on it, uh, is to really focus in on the health, uh, economic and social inequities, which have been exposed for all to see, if they've never seen them before, uh, by the, the pandemic. The disease has been so deadly uh, to minority populations uh, trapped uh, in, in poverty. Lockdowns have denied those with subsistence livelihoods uh, their, their sustenance. The ILO estimated back in April that half the uh, livelihoods in the informal sector would go. And now there's a, a creed occur that comes out of this, and I know Michelle, who authored a report, a letter report for the ILO, will identify with this, universal social protection. We didn't go into this pandemic with that. And that's been you know, quite disastrous for, for so many people in so many countries. Uh, a fourth uh, uh, thing to focus on would be recommitting to the goal of education for all, because COVID-19 has exposed inequalities in education. Uh, I've just been part of the launch of uh, UNESCO's latest global education monitoring report on inclusion and in education. And they've done some rapid work to update it for this period of the pandemic and uh, say that 40% of low and middle income countries were not able to support learners who, who were at risk of exclusion during the crisis. You know, take, for example, uh, Ethiopia, where for the, the bottom quintile of people uh, on the income ladder, only 7% own a radio. So it's not even an issue, an issue of, you know, could you get a, an iPad and the modem out? Forget that. Only 7% have a radio. And so, as Kevin touched on earlier, uh, getting connectivity, the ability to connect with each other. We know how to do remote learning, but we often lack the most basic uh, tools for it to, to reach every child and keep uh, opportunity going. Needless to say, when you go through a pandemic with 80% or upwards of the uh, learner population of the world out of school, there will be some children who never get back to school with their families impoverished and them going down a track of, 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 of child labour. So I thought that, that would be you know, quite a practical list of things to focus on, pandemic preparedness, universal social protection, universal health coverage, uh, education for all. And those points uh, touch on a number of the key transformations that Jeff Sachs and Johan Rockstrom and others have talked about. But of course, to do those things requires investment. And one of the legacies of this pandemic is the most mind-boggling government deficits. If I as Prime Minister had ever envisaged that I would have a deficit the size of the one the New Zealand government and so many other governments now face for digging deep, you would be horrified. But of course, it's one thing for a Western country, which is bankable to run up a deficit. For many of the world's emerging and developing countries, it's utterly disastrous. The IMF uh, I recall estimated there was a need for 2.5 trillion for all the range of bailout and support mechanisms for those economies. And there's, there's nothing like that amount of money that's come forward uh, to, to help. 
So uh, unless uh, there's a, a massive mobilization of support now out through the international financial institutions, my fear is that in many of the developing and emerging economies, we will see uh, austerity, we will see cuts in services, we will see a continuing pressure on, on jobs and livelihoods. We're certainly seeing extreme poverty and hunger go up. We're likely to see more civil unrest, which in authoritarian states will be met by repression and human rights abuses. That will in turn propel uh, uh, pressures to flee. And in a way, think Venezuela writ large, when an economy collapses and the spillover impacts go all around the region. We, we could see that on a significant scale in the worst case scenario. We need a lot more international solidarity to stop that kind of scenario uh, playing, uh, playing out. Um, so, you know, all that, and <laughs> let me spend the last sort of 40 seconds on saying uh, there's all the big questions then about whether we can reset in a way where we also restore and protect our ecosystems. You know, the pandemic is, is one in the syndemic of crises, uh, the crisis of inequality, the crisis of climate, the crisis of biodiversity, uh, the raging conflicts which have caused, you know, roughly one in every hundred people on earth to be forcibly uh, displaced. The old order is, is very unattractive, but is there the leadership for the new order? Is there the leadership on the environmental side to stop the deforestation, to stop the wildlife trafficking, to stop the overfishing, to stop the degradation of freshwater and oceans, to radically bring down the fossil fuel uh, footprints and move to sustainable energy, to tackle air pollution? You know, a post-COVID world really needs to be tackling these, these things. And as I say, it, it's not going to happen just because we wish it to. I think the world's citizens are going to have to mobilise for that new world with, with passion. Otherwise, we will blunder on uh, to more mistakes as we work our way through more pandemics and more crises. Okay, thank you, Helen, for those sobering remarks. Uh, we turn to Matteo. Thank you so much. But I, I believe every consideration by Arun, by Alan, by my friend Michelle are very interesting. So, for me, I can uh, um, use just three or four points to encourage the discussion for us. I, I, I agree with a lot of considerations of my former colleagues. And so, uh, very briefly, first, uh, this virus uh, changed geopolitics around the world. Please come back to six months ago and you see a different world. A different world in the relation between USA and China. Very important and very interesting. We discussed six months ago about trade, about 5G, and for sure we will have in the next 10 years again a great tension between USA and China. But the change now is a change of narrative. And this change is particularly deep inside American politics. This, for me, is the first uh, consequence of COVID. Uh, six months ago, my friend Joe Biden was considered from a lot of people with a man not able to win. During this period, also thank a very great action from Joe, 
and a very good politics from Democrat Party in USA and particularly with the leadership inside of President Obama, now Joe Biden is not only a candidate, is the maybe the favorite for the um, victory in the, in the White House uh, race uh, in uh, November. So first, everything is changed in the geopolitical situation and inside American politics. Second point, we really touch the change from uh, uh, caused from uh, COVID in the European politics. After Lehman Brothers crisis, European leaders decide to continue with the same approach. They continue with austerity, they continue with the pact of stability and growth, they continue with the rules, bureaucracy, red tape of bureaucracy, etc., etc. Now, also thanks to leadership of Ursula von der Leyen, of Angela Merkel, of Christine Lagarde, just to include also a man, not only women, Emmanuel Macron, I think really Europe changed direction. In four months of coronavirus, Europe changed more in the last 20 years. This is very important to image a new Europe for the future. I don't know what could happen in the next months in Europe, also because I consider the most great danger, uh, dangerous event in the European history will be in May 2022 with the new election in France, particularly if populists will be able to win Paris. But the second consequence is not simply a new relation very strong between USA and China and the consequence inside American politics, but also great, great consequences in the European institutions. Also, because this event follow, of course, uh, for casualty, Brexit. Because in case of presence of London inside EU, I think some decisions adopted by Brussels are absolutely impossible with the presence of UK inside EU. This is very sad for me because I'm a great fan of uh, um, the presence of UK in EU. But we have to be very frank between us. We, without UK, EU accept a new challenge. Just uh, uh, to conclude very briefly, I think it's very interesting to understand what could happen in two very important countries as Brazil and as India in the management of coronavirus. Because I remember the first statement against China, against Italy, against Europe from the leader as Bolsonaro and in part also President Modi. Prime Minister Modi. But I think if we discussed very seriously, now India and Brazil, for a lot of reasons, know a very great tension in the management of coronavirus. Fourth and really last, we don't discuss too much about the consequences about, uh, from coronavirus in the geopolitical area of Mediterranean. I believe that is a very important problem. Because in the last period, you can love, 
you can eat, but the soft power, not too much soft, the power of Russia in the area of Mediterranean is absolutely more is absolutely stronger than three months ago. That is true for Libya. That is true for the great tension about oil and gas. And that is an unbelievable question for the future of that strategic area, because it's true, after uh, fracking, after shale gas, USA decided, not only with the President Trump, but maybe before with the President Obama, to reduce the role of USA in the area of Middle East and Mediterranean. This decision is very important and it's very historical for a lot of reasons. But that decision opened a lot of tensions. And that decision called, in my view, NATO to play a role because Turkey is a part of NATO, because there are a lot of tension in a little corner of the planet, but very important in terms of strategic. So I think that is geopolitical consequence from coronavirus. There are a lot of other points. My view is the next pandemic will be not a pandemic. Will be the next global crisis will be a cybersecurity attack, not a pandemic. And nobody today around the world is ready to use the protection and the system of intelligence altogether, exactly as we were not able to use the healthcare system altogether to, uh, to defend from pandemic. Please consider that. And of course, it's very interesting to understand also is changed the, the public communication during a pandemic because a lot of leaders, particularly in democracies, not out of democratic regime, a lot of that used the public communication with a very strong way. Also about it, it's very interesting to discuss. Very good. Thank you very much, Matteo. Uh, let me now hand over to my colleague, Andres Velasco, who will uh, moderate uh, some of the many questions we've been getting online. Andres? Thank you very much, Minouche. Let me... Um reiterate on behalf of the LSE and the School of Public Policy how delighted we have we are to have these uh, four leaders from three continents joining us for this wonderful discussion this morning, afternoon, evening, depending on where you are. We're going to do a quick round of questions. I will uh, take the chair's liberty and ask each one of our guests one question, and then we will open it up uh, for Q&A with the public. Um, I'm going to ask um, our guests to keep the responses about two or three minutes so that we have enough time to interact with uh, our global audience afterwards. Kevin, let me uh, begin with you. You were very emphatic in your first point that inequality must be on the agenda, but you added um, it is not enough to signal virtue by talking about inequality. We have to do something about it. And in this regard, it seems to me, I was reading a wonderful paper by Danny Roderick and Stephanie Stancheva, both Harvard professors this morning, who make the claim that we will not do away with inequality unless economies can provide good jobs. Uh, and uh, of course, providing good jobs at a time when uh, technology is destroying a lot of jobs is harder than ever. 
and with economies fairly um, slow, as are likely to be in the next couple of years, it is even harder. Uh, as a leader of the center-left, uh, looking forward, how do we make sure that we can fight inequality by providing jobs? Where do we find those jobs? And what kinds of policies can produce them? I think um, two quick sets of points in response to your question, Andres. One's to step back and just uh, look at this philosophically. Um, the future of capitalism um, hangs on we social democrats uh, because those who believe in unrestrained liberal capitalism um, created the last financial crisis uh, 10 years ago and have done little to repair uh, the system since then. Um, on the equality question, what happens is that uh, liberal capitalism says, not my fault, not my problem, go and get a job. Um, having lived in the United States for the last five years, a number of times I've heard that, um, you know, it's almost a piece of quantitative research in itself. Um, the problem is, if you are uh, a liberal capitalist, then you're sowing the seeds for your own Schumpeterian destructionist moment. You'll blow up the system eventually. Social Democrats have two sets of responsibilities. One is to grow the economy sustainably so that jobs are created. We cannot return to old forms of classical socialism. It doesn't work. Um, so our job is to work constructively with markets to grow the economy, to create a new range of jobs and a better range of jobs. But on the way through, not to apologise for a continued role for the state, social democratic state, in various forms of industry policy intervention in the major economic drivers of the future, the new technology industries, the green revolution industries, uh, and others. But my final point is this. Why do I say that uh, this is uh, the moment for social democrats worldwide? Is that we understand that to do that and to grow the economy through being engaged with the market to deploy industry policy, to grow the industries of the future, we must have an equality agenda to bring people with us and to not allow them fall out of the social contract um, and to have a decent universal social protection and decent universal uh, public health provision. It is these three engines which hold together the fabric for the future. Engaging the market, not denying it. Secondly, um, investing in the industries of the future, I've listed just two or three, and making no apology for that as if it's some offence to the liberal capitalist model. They can jump in the lake as far as I'm concerned. Um, and the third is uh, one deeper than the one sitting behind Helen on her screen. Uh, and, the, uh, and the third is uh, we actually understand not just the ethics of action on equality through universal social insurance, but we understand the practicality of holding our societies together and are holding together a social democratic capitalist project. Thank you very much, Kevin. Let me turn now to Michelle, Madam President. Uh, the Economist wrote recently that uh, there are two pandemics in the world today. One is COVID-19. The other is a pandemic of power grabs as um, 
dictator wannabes in many countries across the world use the emergency to seize uh, extraordinary powers. There's also the perception, correctly probably, that AI and technology will be um, a boon for government supervision and bad for individual rights and privacy. How do we make sure, particularly from your seat and your current job, that uh, out of this emergency we get strengthened democracy and human rights and not uh, a weakened state of rights for everyone? Well, um, I'm not sure that we can ensure this, <laughs> but the things that we can do and we have been doing is uh, we have been um, working with member states saying that even though we understand and in the international human rights law, uh, certain restrictions uh, when you have either natural disasters or pandemics or crises like this is accepted. Uh, for example, the, free, the, the restriction of freedom of mobility or the restriction of freedom of assembly, that's a perfectly well understand it, but it has to be proportionate to the necessity. There has to be a clear necessity. It has to have a time bound. It has to be transparent and informed, etc. Uh, but also there are other freedoms that you cannot you cannot use as an excuse a pandemic like as before the freedom of expression the freedom of press etc um, so I think the only way to do it is on one hand insisting um, on, on which other ways we should use this kind of emergency measures uh, what are the dangers on it but also um, to if I would say step up, and, and, and mention the cases that where we believe they have passed the lines. We have seen governments that they have they are governing by decree without uh, respecting the rest of the, the judiciary or the parliamentary system. We have seen governments that are using technology. And one of the words we have been doing for some time is working with the technological sector because um, we believe that human rights should not be considered as um, how we um, avoid that a technological tool will violate human rights, we think from before the design, it has to be thought on that. Um, and we also believe that all these issues, because we have seen, uh, and for example, the need to trace contacts, that is a, a health, public health need, and it's important. But how do you then uh, eliminate that information so it won't be used that to, to other purposes that are not exactly the right ones. How you ensure the right to privacy. So we're working on that thing, giving guidances to member states, but also I think it's important that the different intergovernmental institutions are clear and, 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 and I would say strong on these messages. Some people will try to use an excuse, yes. Uh, and the other thing that I want to point out here is not only about what um, Kevin and, and and Helen mentioned about the digital divide, uh, but also I do believe that for technology, for particularly artificial intelligence and others, we, did, we do need regulation, international regulation. What kind of regulation we can discuss? And I think this kind of regulation, because you cannot have a system that can um, get into people's lives so complicated that it will be developed by the, each, each company's ethics office. So we need to put together public sector, private sector, scientists, academicians, uh, private uh, um, society who works on this to discuss how we're able to ensure that technology is for good. So I think, we're, but I think we're still very slow on this and we have to continue working very strongly. Thank you very much. I'll um, turn to Helen now. Helen, you spoke of international solidarity as being absolutely key during this crisis. The problem is we haven't seen much of it. 
And I am thinking particularly of the role of financing for developing countries, which is something, of course, you dealt with in your years at the UNDP. The um, IMF has estimated that developing countries need 2.5 trillion and uh, the money is nowhere to be found. The fund itself <clears throat> provide one trillion. Uh, debt forgiveness efforts so far, especially those that involve the private sector, have failed miserably. Um, so we could be looking at uh, a decade, maybe, in which many of the advances in fighting poverty and developing a middle class in not just in the very low-income countries, but even in middle-class emerging countries, are set back massively. So. As we speak of international governance, international governance seem to be failing for reasons that are probably more political than technical. Any thoughts on what uh, ways forward for this might look like? Well, you're right. There, there has been nothing like the level of international solidarity needed to uh, see the world through this crisis. There's one exception, and that is uh, the European Union and the group of partners did uh, bring together the uh, sort of conference for pledging for uh, the money for development of uh, diagnostics, therapeutics and vaccines. Uh, that was a recommendation of the Global Pandemic Monitoring Board set up by WHO and World Bank. It needed about $8 billion and it more or less got it, but $8 billion is obviously the petty cash when you're talking about uh, Kristalina uh, Georgieva using the figure of two and a half trillion dollars. Mm. So uh, what is missing is really uh, the figures who can step forward, I think, out of the major economies, the way Gordon Brown did in 2009, backed by other uh, G20 leaders uh, at, at the time, uh, to, to get that grouping, which does represent 85% of the world economy, uh, to, to lead in mobilizing uh, the resources required. And it, it's going to have to be quite a, a broad-based effort to enable the uh, IMF to you know, have more special drawing rights at the disposal of countries uh, for the debt waivers and holidays and, and relief uh, for increasing fiscal uh, space. Uh, and you're right, it's, it's not just the poorest countries who are on the line here. You have economies in the Caribbean and, and also the Pacific who have reached upper middle income status and even in the case of at least one I can think of in the Pacific at the point of graduation uh, from developing country status. But it's all built on the deck of card of tourism, which just stopped. <laughs> so, you know, you have the, uh, the, the, the need for major packages and economies which you, you know, would have been considered nowhere near uh, the, the bottom of the, the ladder. So I think we need to look to who could step forward and, and do this. And I think if you look across the G20 grouping, you know, look, look immediately to Germany and Angela Merkel, who is globally respected, uh, who's led you know, a successful response in challenging circumstances in Germany, who has the gravitas, I think, to be a mobiliser of G20, uh, probably in liaison with President Macron, who also carries carries weight. But uh, we're, we're in a sort of particular moment where uh, G20 currently is led by Saudi Arabia, which isn't going to step up on this. Uh, G7 is led by President Trump. Well, it, it's missing in action. 
so we need other leaders just prepared to say, look, we're going to get in here and push and, and try to uh, rally the troops to stop the worst happening. Because as, as I say, if the worst happens, then you will have a series of collapses of the, the Venezuela kind, uh, which will not only be quite disastrous for the citizens the country is concerned, but have spillover impact all, all around their borders. Thank you, Helen. Missing in action is not a bad way to characterize the role that the U.S. is not playing this time around, and of course, a role that the U.S. under President Obama did play 10, 11 years ago. Matteo, let me turn to you. Both you and Kevin uh, said that uh, the crisis should afford opportunities for the center-left, um, and uh, I want to agree with you. But uh, I cannot help but remember that 10, 11 years ago, uh, the crisis which brought um, low economic growth and employment inequality was also seen as an opportunity for the center-left. And out of that crisis, we got populism, and particularly right-wing populism, in the US, in Brazil, in Turkey, in the Philippines, in India, in Poland, in Hungary. The list is very, very long. Um, what must the centre-left, and this is a directly political question, what must the centre-left do differently to make sure that, in fact, uh, voters do see uh, a feasible and attractive alternative in that uh, political segment coming out of this crisis, unlike what happened 10 years ago? Uh, it's a good question, uh, Andres, because, uh, first of all, uh, there is not one centre-left now around the world. Mm -hmm. There is not a philosophy of third way as 20 years ago. There are two center-left. Mm -hmm. There are two left, more correctly. There is the left uh, of Joe Biden and there is the left uh, of uh, Bernie Sanders, just to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Right. But the same was clearly in the UK, because uh, if against... Uh, Prime Minister Johnson and before Prime Minister Theresa May, uh, Labour Party presented a man or woman came from uh, third way, uh, New Labour, um, friend of uh, Tony Blair uh, strategies. Maybe the result should be absolutely different respect to the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. And that, I think, it's true in a lot of countries, because in every country there is a tension, a division between two lefts. Maybe the only one country in which this division don't, uh, um, it's not so important now, it's paradoxically only Germany, but the left in Germany is totally out from 20 years, in the last 20 years, totally out of the government. Because also in the case of grand coalition, big coalition with a government between CDU of Angela Merkel and SPD with uh, um, uh, Martin Schulz, uh, with uh, um, Sigmar Gabriel, etc. This division between radical left and normal left are caused a real change of importance of traditional uh, uh, power of SPD. What is the point? There is a division before coronavirus, and I think after coronavirus, between two different ideas of the world. And this idea 
it's very complicated for the radical left, but this position usually permit, and this is a paradoxically, permit the victory of populist outright. And I give an answer to your question about the populism and the sovereignism around the world and from Europe to America to other parts of the world. My view is that, please consider Italy, just to make an example, not only because Italy was one of the first countries hit by coronavirus. Consider Italy, because Italy is clearly a country totally, totally, totally um, connected to the globalized, the globalization. Italy needs tourists around the world, from, around the, from abroad. Italy needs a very important part of export because the Italian products, the made in Italy, is very good for the rest of the world. Italy is a country usually very open to dialogue, to presence of migrants, etc. What is the point of populism, in this case of populism of Mr. Salvini? Is please block the frontiers, close the doors, change this, this narrative. Be careful. That message was paradoxically a message approved by coronavirus. Because coronavirus blocked everyone in our jail called houses, blocked every type of tourism, blocked every type of globalized world. And what is the consequence? The consequence is a tragedy for Italy, a, an economic tragedy. That means a very simple message. The idea of closing society, a society without dialogue, but only with the walls and the frontiers, is a very bad idea for the countries as my country. And paradoxically, coronavirus show the limitations, the problem of sovereignism. But at the same time, what is the next? The next is that if the European government, and in this case is true particularly for France, will not able in the next months to give a strategy of reaction for economic crisis, I think, this is my opinion, populism will come back, populism of right will come back, particularly in France. Because today, if we study Europe, you understand there is not a great success from populism. There are a lot of success in newspapers, but not in the parliaments. The real problem will be 2022 France election. And just to conclude, I think it's very important to change narrative because, okay, let me be very frank. A government focused on the fear is easy. To make prime minister with a great problem and with a very easy message, please, we have to be everyone all together. We have to block our activity because we have to save our lives. This is not a great problem. It's easy, the message. The real difficulty is change and pass from fear to hope. To make the prime minister with a vision, with an ideal, with a
possibility of recovery is not easy because you need an unbelievable courage and an unbelievable risk of failure. So my view is that today, after three months, four months of lockdown, polemics, healthcare, dramatic situation, a lot of that, after that very strong period, we, we need a different narrative, particularly from the left, able to give hope, to give a new vision, not only to make a government focused on the fear. Thank you, Matteo. From fear to hope, that could be a good title for the narrative we're all hoping will emerge from this uh, crisis. Uh, both Michelle and Matteo have alerted us they may have to leave early because they have other commitments. Um, Michelle, do we have time for one question with you before you uh, have to leave? Indeed. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to move on to questions from the audience. And the first one uh, for Michelle Bachelet is from Graciela Piga, who says, Madam Bachelet, you have been your, our pride uh, given your work in UN Women. Um, and uh, the question is, in your opinion, what should be done concretely to make COVID-19 an opportunity to address structural gender inequalities? Well, I mean, there's a lot that needs to be done. And, and we have, um, if, if she wants to look at more details afterwards, uh, she, we have the developer guidance that is in our web page in terms of recommendation from member states uh, to tackle the different aspect of gender inequality. And also one issue that we have seen increase dramatically during the quarantine is the gender-based violence. Uh, and, 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 and I think what, what we need, of course, is people, women leaders to step up, to show um, how you can um, make a very important government with good policies that has a gender perspective. You need to ensure that more women are in the uh, decision-making positions uh, in governments, in, in municipalities. I mean, not only on the national level, regional level, local level. Uh, you need uh, to ensure that you have uh, systems like quota system that would permit to have uh, a better representation of what a society is. Countries like mine, where it's 52% of women and, and people still in their speeches speaks about minorities. Like, And so you need more parliamentarians, you need more people on the, on the municipality councils, more women there, that they can bring the gender perspective, that they can bring and contribute in a very special way. I think we also need to show role models and to have role models that can show that women can be great leaders and that can contribute fantastically in different levels. Um, of course, at the university, at, at, at the banks, at the private sector, at the public sector, and it can be done. Because uh, in, in my last government, when I arrived, we had in the state-owned companies only 5% of uh, members of the board were women. And I said I would do 40% and we'll finish with 42%. So it, it, might, it means political will. I think it's important to have if possible, paritarian uh, cabinets. And I thank you because we have been a paritarian panel here. So that is also important because I have been in many panels, all our men and me. So I think we need to, to have give space to women. But and because we have fantastic women everywhere, I have met so many women. So I think that it's important also to create um, alliances between women. I think that women who has experience and, and power should mentor younger women, 
being at SMEs or, or women who want to go into politics, even though politics, I have to say, is pretty ugly today. So many women don't want to go into it because it's not a nice thing to do. But I think we need more women everywhere to give them the possibilities to develop all their skills, all the capacity. And may I just add a little thing on, on the question you asked to, to, to Matteo? Because I believe that we are living, and before COVID, uh, a crisis of legitimacy of political parties, political institutions, and in some places, all kinds of institutions, judiciary system, parliamentarians, and even police forces and security forces. So I believe that the center left needs to connect more with the people and their real concerns. And not because citizens feel that politicians are in a limbo, discussing about things that they, that they don't care about them. And I feel we need to open spaces to new leaders. All these massive streets of protests were all led by young people, uh, professionals, not necessarily the poorest, um, a lot of women as well. And we see that in Me Too and all other social movements. And I think we need to get in touch also with more of the issues that for people are important right now, climate change, uh, of course, technology, and so on. Uh, so I think it's good fear to hope, but it's not enough. We need uh, new kinds of leaderships, and not necessarily new leaders, but new kinds of leadership, and parties who really connect with the people, because I feel that people are really disenfranchised from, from parties because they don't feel that they're really concerned. And the last thing I think in the past happened, that people could not tell the difference between uh, center-left and, 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 and right, center-right sometimes, because of the policy were really similar. So I think it's a new narrative, a new opportunity for the new economy and so on. But also I think the way politics is being done has to change because it's not something that the citizens are accepting and, uh, now. Thank you, Andres. Thank you very much. Um... I have to say that I was very happy and proud to serve in what was Chile's uh, first gender parity cabinet back uh, in 2006. Um, and thank you also for that reminder that a lack of trust in political institutions is really a tremendous problem in rich and, in rich and poor uh, countries uh, alike. Uh, both uh, Michelle and Mateo, as I mentioned, uh, uh, have to leave early. I think Mateo has disconnected already. We thank him for joining us. Thank you, uh, Michelle Bachelet, uh, as well. And I'm going to carry on with um, more questions from, uh, from the audience. We have a question from Sushant Subedi, who is a social policy undergraduate student here at the LSE. And this is for anybody who'd like to tackle it. He says, or she says, uh, as the speakers highlight, highlighted the need for universal social protection after COVID, um, I'm hoping that they will tell us how that will be feasible, given that uh, governments have accumulated so much debt in the course of this crisis, and that uh, naturally the tendency will be to drive down the deficit, drive down the debt. Will that leave fiscal space for social protection? Helen, Kevin, who'd like to tackle that? Well, well of course, it's, it's later in New Zealand than Australia. No, no, it's mm. later in New Zealand than Australia. So, Helen, you go first. <laughs> 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 well, I think um, in the earlier question to, to Kevin, uh, the issue came up of, you know, is having a high level of employment very important in, in getting, you know, a universal uh, standard of living that, that, that's acceptable? And, and I think it is. I think I could probably say, Kevin, for Australia as well as New Zealand, the social security system has long been built on a base of, of 
pretty close to near full uh, employment. And then, uh, you know, having a, a comprehensive net for older citizens, people with illness or disability, the, the parent bringing up uh, uh, children uh, full time uh, and, and so on. Uh, so I think part of the, you know, the, the answer to getting the universal social protection equating to a you know, widespread adequacy of income will be to get jobs and livelihoods back again and, and reasonably fast. That's not inconsistent, by the way, with the, the kinds of investments needed for the, uh, the green uh, transformation. That, that can be job rich, and I think that needs to be factored in uh, going, going forward. Uh, but, yeah, it, in essence, I think there needs to be a responsibility taken by the state for seeing that people uh, do not fall into, into abject poverty. Uh, the support needed may not only be the support that comes through some kind of social security payment, like a cash transfer that tops up low income or, or an outright uh, benefit, but it's also a question of ensuring that health care is, is covered, that they're, they're that a family doesn't face bankruptcy when there's catastrophic illness, uh, ensuring that education is is accessible and affordable, and and really at the you know the basic first twelve year levels, it, it ought to be free uh, to ensure a quality of access. So uh, there's a number of ways of of cutting the cake, but I I do think that you know the sooner we can get people uh, back back in jobs and productive livelihoods, the the better. Yeah, I, I, I happen to think that the emphasis on jobs is absolutely key. So thanks for, for going that back to that, um, Helen. Um, Francis, uh, also a student, um, wants to know about uh, how do we fund institutions like the WHO? Uh, and the question is, to function effectively, such institutions will have to unshackle themselves from a financial dependence on individual nations and governments. Um, how do you think this can be best achieved, is asking Francis. Kevin, you want to take a crack at that? Uh, yeah, I'm sure Helen will have views on that because she's been a senior practitioner within the UN system. Um, two sets of observations. One, if I could yes. uh, add to what Helen just said before into the last question. It is an essential question for us all. How do we fund and finance in the current environment or in any environment significant equality programs um, uh, given that we are collectively debt constrained? My response to that is that it, look at the four critical fund areas that we need. One is employment insurance. Uh, the second uh, is universal health insurance. Uh, the third is, let's call it catastrophic injury or disability insurance. And the fourth is retirement income. We could find others, but frankly, um, that's not a bad four to build your pillars on. My judgment, based on the Australian experience, is if you took just one of those pillars, which is retirement income, in this country, uh, 25 years ago, a social democratic government mandated under law uh, that employers and employees had to set aside 9% uh, of their income to fund their long-term 
retirement called the Compulsory Superannuation Scheme. And despite the fact that conservatives have tried to unravel it multiple times since then, including again most recently, um, it has achieved enormous success over time. And the whole objective is to provide decent retirement income for working families without raiding the general budget in the future for the age pension for everybody. Um, and the objective with that level of uh, mandatory saving, somewhere between 9 and 12%, was to enable people to retire with about two-thirds of their at-retirement income and not with uh, your classic European-style unfunded pension schemes which just go off into the sky. Um, you know, it doesn't work. So I would simply say that in terms of political constituency support, there's a way through this. Uh, and these three or four critical areas look at hypothecation of an element of a person's, let's call it, tax contribution. Um, for example, that's what, in effect, superannuation is in Australia or retirement income is in Australia, so that, the, so that people and voters actually see what their money is being saved for, um, so that when you draw down on it or the community has to draw down on it, it's not coming out of some mythical pond. It's coming out of something that I have invested in for my future. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, I think, is a way through. WHO, different question. Um, I've long had a view that um, uh, f funding of the UN agencies, most, the most critical ones, uh, given that you've got um, uh, general budget funding, which come from the mandatory contributions from member states, and then you have... Uh, individual discretionary contributions by member states to individual uh, organizations and even programs within organizations is that um, the system has now become fraught with danger because of the collapse in, let's call it general budget funding, um, some growth in some areas of, um, of, um, uh, of the discretionary funding. Of course, the problem with discretionary funding is it skews the operations and sometimes the attention uh, of the organisation itself without pointing fingers at anybody. Look, so therefore, what's the solution? Um, when we deem agencies to be of critical social and humanitarian relevance, things like, uh, frankly, um, the um, World Health Organisation, uh, things like the World Food Programme, for example, uh, these, in my judgment, should be funded uh, to perform their functions effectively entirely out of general budget provision uh, from the mandatory contributions of member states. We need to set up probably a hierarchy between those who are nearest the front line of human service delivery and those which are more discretionary, if you like. Um, otherwise, we're going to starve these institutions. And I wrote a report on UN reform, what, about three or four years ago now, um, where I said the problem with our UN system generally and with uh, WHO and institutions like in particular is that over time, member states increasingly walk around them, don't use them, and they begin to fall into disrepair uh, because they're not seen as being effective anymore, partly because they've been defunded. That's how we have death by a thousand cuts uh, in the uh, multilateral system. None of these institutions will ever be abolished overnight. Um, but I do worry about incremental damage being done over time. And that's my suggested funding response to the most critical of them.
Thank you, Kevin. Um, as a former finance minister, I cannot but agree with the notion that we need more social protection, but we've got to fund it. Unfunded liabilities, as you put it, um, float off into the sky and don't work. Uh, couldn't agree more with that. Helen, you want to take a crack at, uh, at the big issue of how we fund the WHO and similar institutions? Well, in a sense, you get what we pay for, don't you? And the WHO has had very low core uh, funding uh, from the member states. Uh, most of its funding will be uh, for particular projects. I mean, one of the tragedies of the US walking away is that if it walks away from all its funding to WHO, it, it basically you know, decimates the polio program where a lot of its funding was going. Uh, so I don't really see an alternative to member states coming together in a compact to say we want to fund the lead organisation in global health properly. And perhaps COVID-19 will be the wake-up call we need for that. Ebola wasn't because it didn't spread far enough. It was disastrous for three small West African countries, and it's been disastrous over the last 18 months, two years in Democratic Republic of Congo. But by and large, it, it scarcely touched uh, the West. Now we've seen what a pandemic can do, and, and frankly, how woefully prepared most of the global North was, uh, perhaps it might take more interest for the most part and under a Biden presidency in funding the lead organisation properly so it can do its job and can have reach and can support building the capacity in countries with less of it uh, to, to fight a, a pandemic. I mean, what is the alternative to the member states funding? You can't have it funded by private industry. You can't have the pharmaceutical companies going in funding it. That, that's a hopeless conflict of interest. Uh, you know, some of the foundations are generous, but they get a lot of abuse for their generosity. And the reality is that very large foundations with particular interests can skew funding as well. So my appeal really is to the vast majority of the world's countries who do support the multilateral system to stump up according to their means and the formulas. And, uh, you know, we need the WHO, we need it to be better, but we're going to have to pay for it out of our taxes uh, to our governments and for them into the WHO coffers. Thank you, Helen. Uh, as I scroll up and down the questions that uh, our audience has uh, sent, there are several, I'm not going to read them out loud, which come back to the issue of multilateral or international financing for development. Um, uh, our audience ex expresses a lot of concern that uh, institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the regional development banks, maybe the UN system itself are coming up short uh, and that... Uh, what we're really facing is a potential tragedy in developing countries. Um, if either you, Helen, or Kevin would like to add something uh, along uh, those uh, lines, uh, it'd be great. Well, we are, is the, uh, is the, short, uh, <laughs> the short answer that uh, if more support can't be mobilised for Kristalina Georgieva and her team to do what they need to do, uh, if there's not uh, more support through the, the multilateral uh, uh, and regional banks, uh, then, you know, the, the many emerging and developing countries which are looking to them now, you know, mm. as of mid-May, 103 had applied for emergency support from the IMF, they're going to miss out and, and it will be catastrophic and you will then see countries having to go into austerity and, and all the, you know, the, the cuts and services that, uh, that that implies. 
so again, you know, my, my call and uh, Kevin and I are among, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of former heads of state and government who've put our names to uh, letters that have gone to the G20 leaders setting up the rationale uh, for a, a whip around uh, to make sure that the international financial institutions are funded to do the job they need to do in these these kinds of emergencies. It, it seems to me you, you pay now, you pay later. If you pay up front before catastrophe happens, you'll get better results than if you have to park the ambulance at the bottom of the, the cliff and picked up really wrecked economies and societies, which may have you know, descended into a spiral of lawlessness and, uh, and uh, you know, really, really protracted conflict. Uh, so, again, you know, we, we look to the, the world's governments to step up and support the multilateral institutions they belong to. I think Helen at the very beginning of this evening. Kevin, please. Yeah, yeah, just Helen's initial comments tonight when we began this session saying COVID's not over. Um, we should come back to that because she's absolutely right. Uh, this has been an intelligent discussion on the post-COVID uh, public policy challenges of the world. Let's call these the pan-COVID challenges, that is, now and spreading into the future. And the nature of this crisis, it's, it strikes me, has escaped you know, a general consensus in analysis. Public health crisis first. Um, general economic crisis as a consequence, as a result of lockdown. And the third stage is avoidable but possible, which is a financial crisis. Um, having been Prime Minister during the global financial crisis, that's when my hair turned white. It mm -hmm. began as a financial crisis in the United States, became a general economic crisis. Um, and, and that's when uh, collectively the G20 intervened. Um, and that's what broke the, broke the fall. So the G20 intervention now, and the letter which uh, Helen referred to before was coordinated by our friend and colleague Gordon Brown, um, uh, was absolutely um, right. Because right now, uh, the IMF, uh, uh, there are 100 plus applications in for emergency assistance, 72 have been granted. Since we founded the fund, with the Bretton Woods Agreement of 44. This is unprecedented. We've never done 72 interventions simultaneously. Mm. I mean, Kristalina Georgieva should be, you know, given a prize for just getting sleep at night because, uh, frankly, this is an unprecedented burden uh, for any IMF uh, managing director. Secondly, the fact that she's been able to raise rapidly a trillion US one trillion, that is four times the amount that we gave the IMF 10 years ago. And that is basically seen the IMF through this initial tranche of difficulties. However, when you look at where debt is now landing in the international system, uh, it lands ultimately with somebody. It doesn't vanish into space, despite what the quantitative easing theorists in their ultimate uh, intergalactical dreams may think, um, it actually lands somewhere on a balance sheet, either an individual balance sheet, a corporate balance sheet, uh, a government balance sheet, or an international institution's balance sheet. Or you have default and everything which flows from that. So we have these things in the IMF called special drawing rights, SDRs. Um, and uh, the SDRs, in my argument, and many people, I believe, support this proposition, now need to be used as a new source of collateral 
to raise the remaining $2 trillion. Uh, because unless we do so, um, as corporations' balance sheets degenerate, particularly if we have second-wave effects, particularly if this ends up not being a single war against COVID, but a long-term war against COVID, and we end up with economies on war footings as we deal with one incoming attack after the other. Um, uh, this sort of creative financing approach through sovereigns to ultimately um, underpin uh, the balance sheet catastrophes, which would then fall on their private financial institutions and on their corporations, not as grants, but as the equivalent of TARP, Target Asset Recovery Program, which the United States, through Hank Paulson and others, uh, ultimately uh, drew the American financial system into recovery after the last crisis. Thank you very, very much, Kevin. Uh, I am looking at the clock here. We are close to um, to our closing. I want to turn it back to Minush in one second, but I cannot resist one closing temptation, which is uh, both Matteo and Michel had thoughts on what the centre-left should do differently this time around to make sure that uh, populism is not the big winner from this crisis. Just do you, Helen or Kevin, want to add any thoughts on what uh, the lessons might be? Well, I think one of the lessons will be not to go down an austerity route. I think the, the problem uh, for the centre-left in the previous uh, crisis of GFC uh, was often it got left with, with the hospital pass. <laughs> it was in, in power at the time. It uh, had a more you know, conventional response, I suppose you could say. Uh, this is not that time. And, and I think, you know, if, if we look at uh, how the, the government in, in New Zealand, which is basically a centre-left left government with, with an eclectic element on the side, if you look at the, you know, the, the social democracies in, in uh, Scandinavia, I, I think, you know, the, or, or Portugal or Spain, there's going to be models coming out of this where, uh, you know, they can... Not not rely on on austerity, but take a longer term view uh, towards uh, you know getting getting on top of the debt burden they've incurred, and uh, ideally try to, to to grow their way out of it, not not cut their way out of it uh, to get results. Thank you very much, Alan. Kevin. Oh, three just shut quick dot points. Give them are on time. One is um, I don't think uh, we should. Um, uh, throw out the idea of a centre-left social democratic political enterprise uh, which um, embraces markets and embraces uh, equality. Uh, we can do that. Uh, we simply need to have the political craft to put a message around that um, so that we're not seen as captive of financial markets, but nor are we seen as captive of failed classical socialist solutions of the past um, because um, economic activity has to be generated uh, in the private sector. That's number one. Number two, you know something? I don't have the answer to this, but let me pose the question. Why has the centre-right slash far-right constantly beaten us on the question of, let's call it, uh, identity politics um, around race, uh, nationalism, religion, the usual eclectic mix, um, uh, which we would call elements of populism as well. It's partly because uh, we uh, progressives, um, centre-left types, haven't 
applied our political imagination to what constitutes a legitimate centre-left populist message that actually excites people, not just in terms of the better angels of their nature, which is where we usually go, but in terms of legitimate aspects of identity which don't traduce um, our universal principles. We should not simply concede this ground to the nut jobs on the right. Um, there is a creative way through this which doesn't put us in the defensive posture of destroying, quote, everyone's perceived sense of local identity. Um, thought number two, as I said, it's a question without an answer. Now, the third one goes to the structure of the global media. Uh, frankly, I don't know a single country in the collective West at the moment, with perhaps the exception of Canada, uh, where the mainstream media uh, pr provide coverage for, let's call it, a mainstream centre-left narrative on the future. What I find in the structure of the global media is that our enterprise is seen as increasingly boutique and open to ridicule and as a consequence is denied oxygen and the default position is that the norm is a centre-right conservative reality uh, and populism being tolerated. We have a problem with the structure of media for which uh, my compatriot, Rupert Murdoch, is primarily but not exclusively to blame um, because his damage to all of us through Fox uh, in the United States, his damage in Britain through Sun and Brexit, uh, his damage uh, in Australia through it, the entire media show which he owns, um, is comprehensive, but that's just the Anglosphere. You go more broadly in this particular that we call it disease of the mainstream media, denies oxygen for an effective and politically credible centre-left progressive narrative. Three, three thoughts. Thank you very, very much. Minush, over to you. Hey, thank you, Andres. Uh, first, thank you to our speakers who've done a fantastic job of laying out the challenges in the future agenda. I think what struck me the most was that the policy agenda for the post-COVID world sounded an awful lot to me like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. When I listened to Helen and Michelle in particular, they talked about universal health care, basic income, securing minimum standards of living for people, a green recovery, social safety nets, gender equality. It sounds an awful lot like the SDGs. And of course, Kevin talked about a green recovery and dealing with inequalities in our societies. So it struck me that the policy agenda sounded somewhat familiar. I think the difficult question is, is there a political window of opportunity that makes that policy agenda viable post-COVID? And Matteo Renzi, uh, I think, argued quite persuasively that the, that the COVID crisis has shaken up politics in the US and may change the outcome of the election there. And it's also changed politics in the EU toward one in which greater solidarity has become more acceptable. Uh, I think the question is whether that political window of opportunity is more widespread. Will countries adopt a more outward and generous political stance or will they turn inward and selfish? I think one of the interesting things about this disease is that for sure, the poor have been hit the hardest, those who are, 
have lower incomes, have better, worse health outcomes, those who uh, are in racial groups that suffer from those things, the poor have been hit the hardest, but it's also hit the rich. You know, in the UK, Prince Charles got it. You know, the prime minister got it. Um, and, you know, in past crises, you know, you think about World War II, the fact that people were genuinely in it together and that everyone suffered the consequences of the war created a, a political space around greater social solidarity, which then enabled a whole set of reforms that were transformative. And this crisis does have that character in that it does hit everyone. I think what also struck me was that um, I think Kevin pointed out uh, the need for different international coalitions for the international system to work. I spent 25 years of my career in the international system at the IMF, FIFID, the World Bank, and know from, you know, frontline experience, the countries that benefit most from a rules-based international order are small and medium-sized countries. And yet we rely on the big countries to be the guarantors of the system. And I think what Kevin was saying is we've got to stop doing that. The small and medium-sized countries who are the biggest stakeholders in a rules-based international order need to step up uh, and not rely so heavily on the big countries, uh, particularly the United States, who until now has been the guarantor of the current system. I think conversations like the one we've had today are essential building blocks to building a different narrative, both at the national level and at the international level. I've been you know, amazed to watch the questions in the chat, sadly not all of them that we could get to, but you know, we've had questions from Argentina, India, Turkey, and of course from the UK. And one of the silver linings of this dreadful crisis has been it's enabled us to get four global leaders on three, from three continents to have a conversation with thousands of people from across the world about the post-COVID world. And I think it's these kinds of opportunities that are precisely what is needed to lay the groundwork for a new policy narrative for the post-COVID world. I'll stop there. I think we'll come to a close. And thanks again to all those who participated. And I encourage you to join us again at future conversations hosted by the London School.